Good morning. In today's headlines, stabbings in Las Vegas leave two people dead and six wounded. Find out what's known so far about what appears to be an unprovoked attack. Hunter Biden could be in some new hot water. Leaks suggest the FBI has gathered substantial evidence against him. Find out what charges are being considered. President Joe Biden announces a major policy shift on marijuana. He also had some good news for those with federal marijuana possession convictions. We have the details. A judge delays Elon Musk's Twitter takeover trial. This gives the billionaire three weeks to close his deal to buy the social media platform. Good morning. Welcome to NTD. I'm Kevin Hogan. And I'm Evelyn Lee. Good Friday morning. It's October 7th and we're starting off this morning with disturbing news from Nevada. A man stabbed and killed two people on the Las Vegas Strip on Thursday. Six others were wounded. Police say three are in critical condition and the others are stable. They say the victims of the attack were both locals and tourists. Witnesses say some of the victims were showgirls or street performers who take pictures with tourists. One person that witnessed it all told media the suspect first said he was a chef who wanted a picture with the showgirls and his knife. And when the group declined, he started stabbing people. Police have one suspect in custody, 32-year-old Yoni Barrios. What we know so far is that he allegedly used a large knife with a long blade, and he doesn't seem to be a resident of Las Vegas. The motive is still unclear, though. And in other news, a federal judge blocked parts of New York's new gun law on Thursday. He ruled that portions of the statewide law are unconstitutional. The judge put his decision on hold for three days to allow the state to challenge it in a higher court. The temporary injunction blocks new requirements around background checks that include handing over social media accounts, as well as requiring applicants to provide evidence of good moral character. It also blocks the ban on carrying firearms in the subway or Times Square. He also struck down a provision that would bar people from bringing guns onto someone else's property unless given permission by the owner. One example would be a shop owner posting a sign that says guns are allowed. However, the judge did rule that the city should be allowed to exclude guns in certain sensitive locations, but only in places where guns have been banned in the past. Locations like schools, government buildings, polling places, and places of worship. New York Attorney General Letitia James filed an appeal later on Thursday. And gun sales are still at near record highs. The firearms industry and FBI have counted over 1 million sales each month over the past three years. The year with the most gun sales is 2020, followed by 2021. This year is on track to come in third. Industry experts say that 1.2 million guns were sold in September because about 8 in 10 people think that violent crime has risen. They say gun buyers are responding to a need for personal safety. High inventory and lower prices are also making gun ownership easier. Inflation may be affecting other merchandise, but gun industry experts are saying prices are lower now than they've been in over a decade. And there are new allegations coming to light on President, Biden, on President Biden's son, Hunter. It's possible he could be charged with tax-related crimes, as well as for making false statements to buy a firearm. And today's Jeremy Sandberg has more on the charges being considered. According to the Washington Post, the FBI has been investigating the president's son, Hunter Biden, since 2018. 
They reported federal investigations first focused on his consulting work and business dealings overseas. But now sources say the probe is centered around if he correctly reported his income and for allegedly answering no on a gun purchase form to a question about being addicted to or using illegal drugs. The sources spoke on the condition of anonymity because the case is ongoing. They say after months of gathering evidence, it's enough to press charges. Hunter Biden said in 2020 that his tax affairs were being investigated, but that he handled them legally and appropriately. He paid off a tax bill of about $2 million shortly after that announcement. Hunter says in his recent book, Beautiful Things, a memoir, that he's battled with drug and alcohol addiction for years. That was around the same time he bought the gun. He was discharged from the Navy when he tested positive for cocaine in 2014. Making false statements on a gun purchase form is a felony. In an interview with Fox News, his lawyer Chris Clark noted it's a felony for a federal agent to leak information about an ongoing grand jury investigation. He says they expect the Justice Department to investigate and prosecute whoever leaked the information, and that prosecutors should not be pressured, rushed, or criticized for doing their job. Clark claims he's not been contacted by any federal investigative agents, and that his client is being targeted because of his family name. The final decision is now up to the Delaware U.S. Attorney if charges are filed or not. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. Now, Republicans say they will also launch an investigation into Hunter Biden if they take control of the House in the upcoming midterms. They want to find out if President Biden has been involved in his son's business dealings with China and other foreign countries. And President Joe Biden took steps to overhaul U.S. policy on marijuana yesterday. He did so by pardoning thousands of people with federal offenses for simple marijuana possession. He also initiated a review of how the drug is classified. And today's Daniel Monahan has the story. The move by the Biden administration takes a dramatic step toward decriminalizing the drug. No one should be in jail just for using or possessing marijuana. Biden says thousands of people with prior federal convictions could be denied employment, housing, or educational opportunities. He says his executive action would relieve such collateral consequences. More than 6,500 people with prior federal convictions could be affected by the pardons. It should have been done a long time ago. Shop, you know, there's so many shops, you look around every corner, we're selling weed, and the person that's in jail for doing the same thing. Regarding prisoners, Biden also says the move will address marijuana arrest practices that disproportionately impact minorities. Nearly 40 U.S. states have legalized marijuana use in some form, but it remains completely illegal in some states and at the federal level. Reclassification would be a first step toward wider legalization. That move is backed by a majority of Americans, would usher in sweeping changes for companies in law enforcement and impact millions. Critics oppose the move by the Biden administration. Senator Tom Cotton tweeted that, quote, once again, Biden's response to record overdose deaths and murders is to be softer towards crime. Meanwhile, Arkansas Governor Asa Hutchinson says the president has waved the flag of surrender in the fight to save lives from drug abuse and adopted all the talking points of the drug legalizers. The global cannabis industry is forecast to hit $55 billion in sales by 2026, with the U.S. market growing to $40 billion by then, up from $25 billion last year. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. A Delaware judge on Thursday ordered a halt to Twitter's lawsuit against Elon Musk, effectively giving the billionaire time to finance his $44 billion takeover of the social media platform. 
The ruling followed days of uncertainty about Musk's intentions. The judge's order says if Musk fails to close by the October 28th deadline, she would schedule a trial for November. This week, Musk confirmed he would purchase Twitter at the $54.20 per share price he agreed to in April on the condition the deal could secure debt financing. That marked a reversal for Musk, who spent months in litigation with Twitter as he tried to get out of the deal. He claimed Twitter misrepresented the number of real users on its platform, among other claims. We have updates from Syria next. U.S. forces killed three senior ISIS leaders in two separate military operations yesterday. One of them was a rare ground raid in the Northeast, a region that's controlled by the Syrian regime. Pentagon Press Secretary Brigadier General Pat Ryder said in a briefing that the focus is to continue working with partners in the region. Clearly, ISIS is not the threat that they were uh, back in 2014, uh, and the point is we want to keep it that way, and so it's something that we have to just continue to work very hard on. According to officials, U.S. Special Operations Forces conducted a raid near the village of Kamishli, killing an Islamic State insurgent who was involved in smuggling weapons and capturing two others. Later Thursday, the U.S. conducted an airstrike in northern Syria, killing the number two Islamic State leader and one other ISIS leader. The U.S. continues to have about 900 forces in the country to advise and assist Syrian Democratic Forces in the fight against ISIS. It doesn't often conduct missions on territory that is under the control of Syrian President Bashar Assad. No civilians or U.S. troops were killed or injured in the raid. Following North Korea's missile tests, the nuclear-powered aircraft carrier USS Ronald Reagan launched a new round of naval drills with South Korean warships today. The latest two-day drills took place in international waters off the Korean Peninsula's east coast. North Korea may react to the new drills with more missile tests. According to North Korea's foreign ministry, the carrier group's redeployment poses, quote, a serious threat to the stability of the situation on the Korean Peninsula and in its vicinity. Thursday's missile launches were the North's sixth round of weapons firings in less than two weeks. And coming up, OPEC Plus cuts production by 2 million barrels a day. We speak to an energy expert to find out what that means at the pump. And some advice from restaurant owners who survived the pandemic. Find out why they, what they say their keys to success were. We'll find out more in just a minute. Welcome back. Oklahoma Secretary of Education Ryan Walters is calling for a teacher's license to be revoked. This after Project Veritas released an undercover video of English teacher Tyler Rin. Entity's Daniel Monahan has the story. Libs of TikTok had previously exposed the teacher. They reposted a video where Rin insulted his students' parents that refused to conform to transgender ideology. In the latest video by Project Veritas, Rin had this to say. Trust me, I want to, like, burn down the entire system. But Tyler says there's only one thing stopping him. The only thing that's a problem here is that uh, House Bill 1775 or something. I can get my license revoked for it, for being too House Bill 1775 says that public schools shall be prohibited from engaging in race or sex-based discriminatory acts which result in individuals being treated differently or the creation of a hostile environment. It is referred to as Oklahoma's anti-CRT or critical race theory law. On religion, Tyler had this to say. 
eventually you want to like remove Christianity from or uh, religion from progressive thought because yeah. like religion is hierarchical. Oklahoma Secretary of Education Ryan Walter is not impressed. We have many great teachers in Oklahoma. Tyler Wren is not one of them. He is calling for Tyler's license to be revoked. In Oklahoma, we will emphasize academics. We will ensure that our students have the ability to be successful, and we will not tolerate indoctrination and political activism in our classroom. This isn't left or right issue. It's about protecting our kids. Meanwhile, the principal at Will Rogers High School had this to say. But there is no secret curriculum at Rogers. There is nobody that's got no politics here. Project Veritas is an American conservative activist group founded by James O'Keefe in 2010. Daniel Monahan, NTD News. And on a whole other topic now, OPEC Plus decided to cut 2 million barrels of oil production a day. That's despite repeated pressure from the Biden administration to pump more fuel. Oil prices had fallen to around $80 a barrel from $120 in early June. So I spoke to an energy expert to find out what will happen now. Joining me to discuss the OPEC production cut is Tom McNulty, the president of Energy Consulting Group, TJ McNulty & Company. Good morning, Tom. Good morning. Great to be on with you. Well, there is a lot going on right now, so it's great to have you. First, OPEC Plus, of course, cutting 2 million barrels a day to boost prices. What does this mean for people at the pump? Yeah, I mean, I think, I think it's important to note that it's somewhat defensive from their point of view, if you were to talk to them, that they're trying to hold the line. I think prices, crude prices will trade up, and gasoline prices will probably also come up. But uh, this is largely maintaining a supply-demand balance in their view, the OPEC, OPEC plus view. That's, I mean, that's why you haven't seen oil jump 10, 15 percent, some crazy acceleration. It's sort of been moderately running up because this is this is an attempt by them to maintain prices where they are. And certainly they could run up a little bit. I see. Um, when you say run up a little bit, do you have a little bit of an idea as of how much and when do we see that? I, I think two to five percent is the most that we would see because there's still there's still questions about demand questions about global recession. I think demand, frankly, in Asia is very healthy, particularly in Southeast Asia. And I think that it's more Latin America and Europe where you have concerns about flat growth and even in North America. So I think that what, what OPEC, OPEC Plus is trying to do is, is, is find an equilibrium where they can keep these prices where they are or two to 5% higher um, and not have them fall. You know, I think that's largely what this had to do. And it's also an indication, it, you know, it's an organization that serves its members, right? I mean, they, they, they will do what they need to do to protect their markets. It's not about geopolitics or helping out Washington. And we've seen that the foreign policy team in Washington has been unable to convince them to release more production. Right. Um, that's a very good point. And of course, on the side of the U.S., the Department of Energy will release 10 million barrels from uh, the Strategic Petroleum Reserve next month. But its level is already at a 40-year low now. So I'm just wondering, you know, will this be an issue soon? When I mean, when does the U.S. have to worry about refilling? Yeah, I mean, it, refilling now would be expensive. It's reckless and dangerous. That, 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 that facility in a variety of several facilities, including Louisiana and Texas, were for times of war, severe 
global disruption. I mean, even a hurricane can be a justification to release from the SPR. This is not the right reason to try to lower gasoline prices at the pump. I think it is, um, it's just it's just not what the SPR is for. The 1984 levels are too low given our, our demand profile. As I've said, I've been saying this for a while, we should be aiming for production in the US of 15 million barrels a day. We should have that as a goal and increasing more natural gas production as well. It needs to be refilled. And um, instead of drawing down, they should be refilling it. I mean, it's the opposite of what prudent policy and strategy would dictate. That's very good to know. So thanks a lot for your insights today. Tom McNulty, I really appreciate it. Great to see you. Thank you very much. The pandemic has been tough for many businesses, especially the hospitality industry. We spoke to a few restaurant owners to find out what they did to keep the doors open. NTD's Jeremy Sandberg has the story. In Evansville, Indiana, the last two years have been challenging for restaurants and bars. A number of owners decided to close or sell their businesses for cheap. But where some saw insurmountable obstacles, others saw opportunity. Oscar Velez was one such entrepreneur who bought a restaurant at a low price during uncertain times. He shared the steps he took on the way to success. Uh, we did a lot of changes when we came in. We uh, changed the sign because the previous bar had a reputation that it was not happening in place anymore. Changed the color theme, upgraded uh, the TVs, upgraded the sound, upgraded lighting. Um, also remapped the menu. Velez says another contributing factor was being able to fill a niche. We figured there was no Mexican food downtown, so we put some Mexican food on the menu as well. So we tried to cater. We, we look for a need and then we try to fulfill it. That's what we did. Uh, and people responded well to that. Velez stressed the importance of being consistent during hard times. If you close at 11 one day and the next day you close at 8, people are going to expect you to close at 8 from there on. So just be open when you're supposed to be open and, and we're hiring people eventually show up. He had some words of advice for business owners that might be struggling. Just hang in there, uh, do, what, uh, uh, do what it takes. Yeah, sometimes it's a few more hours, sometimes it's just keeping the place extra clean. Milano Italian Cuisine has been serving customers for 20 years. Owner Rafik Hashem says business was good. We had a steady lunch, steady dinner. Everything was good, you know. We had employees, you know, had between seven to 10 employees at the time. But after the pandemic started, everything changed. Lockdown mandates forced the restaurant to close. I had to lay all my employees off that day. We thought it was going to be for only a week or two, but what happened was it kept extending going on. So it was about six months before I had to open back up. Once he was allowed to open back up, his previous staff didn't want to come back to work. They were making more on government assistance. Well, the employment a week plus 600 a week, that's uh, is about a 908 to 900 bucks a week. And that went on for almost, honestly, it went on for about a year, I think. Plus they had the stimulus, they given us stimulus money, everybody getting uh, that extra money also. Staying open came down to determination and grit. I have to walk extra hours, you know, every single day. I got to cover for three people at this moment. After looking for help for a year and a half, he's only had one person apply for a job. The applicant was hired on the spot, but he never showed up for work. In the past, uh, I'll have two or three people a day come in looking for jobs. Two or three people a day, every single day. Now, Hashem relies solely on himself and one reliable employee that's been with him for 16 years. The two of them are doing the jobs five or six people used to do. He says resilience is key. 
you just gotta stick with it and get up every day, come in early if you have to, stay late. That's what I've been doing myself to keep this business going. And if I didn't do that, we would have been shut down probably, I would say about a year, a year ago, we would have been closed down, different, different. As for advice, Hashem says it's simple. Keep it up and keep going. Just don't give up, don't give up. Things will get better eventually. It will get better. Jeremy Sandberg, NTD News. From Halloween decorations to pumpkin spice lattes, pumpkins seem to hold a special place in the hearts of Americans. We take a look at why after the break. Next, we're going overseas. About a dozen restaurants in Brussels went dark recently. Guests dined at candle-lit tables as the light bulbs were switched off. Let's take a look. In Brussels, a group of restaurant owners has imagined what a future would look like for gourmets without gas and electricity. The guests at the Brasserie Surrealiste were the first to experience it. No ovens, no stoves, no hot plates, no coffee machines and no light bulbs. The idea is to go back to the cave age, so we took out our Japanese barbecue. We prepared a whole series of dishes that just needed to be grilled for a few seconds. Customers tonight will eat a little bit colder and a little bit more raw. But the search for taste, for the amazing, for the stunning is still part of our business. All the food is served at candlelit tables. It sounds like a romantic atmosphere and a one-off experience, but if energy bills keep increasing and the risk of blackouts rises, the situation might not be far off for both customers and restaurateurs. Can we do our job without energy sources? The answer is no. Some 50 guests took part in the dinner event organized as part of the Brussels in the Dark initiative involving a dozen restaurants. One participating restaurant owner said the idea was to set up a positive event for something very negative. What an experience. Hey, Kevin, do you know what's in season right now? Is it cabbage? Uh, guess again. Uh, pumpkin? Exactly. Well, let's be more specific. It's pumpkin spice latte season. And it, and it all started with a perennial popularity of Starbucks's pumpkin spice lattes. Now there are annual introductions of strange new pumpkin-related products. This is a fruit that seems to hold a special place in the hearts of Americans. Let's take a look. I just like the whole vibe and aesthetic of pumpkins. I think with fall, a pumpkin is part of fall. From Halloween decorations to pumpkin spice lattes, pumpkins seem to hold a special place in the hearts of Americans. So much so that they're spending half a billion dollars on pumpkin spice products every year, according to Nielsen data. It's, it's part of a tradition. It's included in movies. And pumpkins also created a nice culture, which I'm appreciating with pumpkin spice donuts, drinks, uh, everything, soaps, bars, everything. And I appreciate it. Starbucks alone reportedly sells 20 million pumpkin spice lattes annually. The coffee giant says it had its best sales week of all time when it reintroduced the drink on August 30th. Hefties has introduced pumpkin scented trash bags that have already sold out. But what is it that drives this infatuation with pumpkins every fall? Cindy Ott, the author of Pumpkin, the curious history of an American icon, has an idea. 
So there's no practical reason to put pumpkin in your cup of coffee, to put it on your front stoop, to put sweeten it and put it in your pie. But those come those modern day traditions actually date back back to much older traditions of associating the pumpkin with the small family farm, the idyllic kind of small family farm in American life. Ott says she used sources like century old songs, paintings and cookbooks to trace America's love for pumpkins all the way back to the nation's early days. Toiling in the soil, working the earth has been a sign of like moral virtue and then creating good citizens and and these kinds of old ideals. And so it's those kinds of ideals that um, that the pumpkin, you know, can carry. Interesting. I definitely learned something new today. And I also have to say, I never knew just how much Americans actually love pumpkin. Oh, yeah. Well, it makes sense. Pumpkin pie goes back to colonial times. Right. And something else Americans like, and apparently just about everyone else, is dogs. And there's a reason why dogs are called man's best friend. It turns out that petting a dog is actually good for our brains. In a study that was just published in the science journal PLOS One, researchers put brain scanners on people and had them pet a stuffed animal and a live dog. And there was a big boost in brain activity when the person got to pet the pup, specifically the frontal cortex, the part of the brain that handles how we think and feel. As soft and cute as a stuffed animal may be, researchers think the real animal creates some emotional involvement, and that's what activates the brain. The research supports using animal therapy to help people with everything from emotional issues to nervous system conditions like strokes, seizure disorders, brain trauma, and infections. Ah, oh, that just warms my heart. Truly man's best friend, huh? You know what? I put my vote in for an office pup. Okay, it's a good idea. And you know, animals are just so helpful in society, like how they help veterans with PTSD and things like that. That's so true, that's so true, yeah. Well, you know, let's wrap it up for today on that note. We'd love to hear from you, though. Before you leave, you can share your thoughts and your story at goodmorningatentity.com. So shoot us an email if you'd like. Thanks for watching and have a great weekend. I'm Evelyn Lee. And I'm Kevin Hogan.